right, get your Bibles open to Mark chapter number five. Mark chapter number five. And as, as we are continuing through our journey through the Bible, uh, we're going to be looking at several stories about Jesus while he was on earth. And so we're going to be jumping back and forth between the Gospels. So now I know we were in Matthew last week, now we're in Mark, and we're not flying through the Gospels that fast. We're going to be jumping between them for the next several weeks, looking at some of the, the incredible stories of Jesus while he was on earth. And so this morning we're going to look at a story in Mark chapter number 5. And if you're familiar with the Bible, you probably know what story we're going to look at. Um, I hate people that jump in line. <laughs> They're like, what? No, I don't. And I know last week I said I hate people. I don't hate people. I hate crowds. I hate just a lot of people. That still sounds bad. I hate, you know, crowds and stuff like that. It just makes my anxiety go to the roof. But anyway, I hate people that, that cut in lines, uh, whether it's cutting in front of you at a, an amusement park, at a, at a, dry, at a restaurant, uh, wherever it is, especially now, you, you know, now we have these, uh, the fast food restaurants, they have those two drive through lanes and people will still cut in front of you in the drive through lane. It's, it makes me want to, you know, ram them with my car. Uh, to me, it's very, it's very rude. It's, it's you telling someone you just cut in front of that your, your time, you are more important than them. You are more valuable than them. And it just, it really irritates me. Uh, and it irritates me so much, I hate when someone accuses me of cutting a line. I remember one day, uh, a couple years ago, I was at Kroger, and they had just installed those self-checkout things. Um, and, you know, the, if you've ever been to one, you know, you've got a row here and a row here. And so I was waiting on one of them to open up. And there were there are two rows, you know, one on this side, one on this side. And I'm waiting in this line for this side registers to open up. There's another guy who is a Kroger employee, but he must be on break or something. So he's waiting to get into his row. And my side opened up. Uh, before his did. And so I go to one of the registers on my side and he, he says something. He goes, oh, so that's what we're doing. And I look back and I'm like, I'm sorry, what? He's like, I was here before you. I should get there first. I'm like, but you're in that line. I'm in this line. He goes, that's not how it works. It's whoever's here first gets. And so I'm like, fine, take your register. And his, his employer, employer, his manager, fussed at him and said, you know, that's not how we do it, especially as a Kroger employee. You don't fuss at Kroger customers. No matter what they do, shut up. And so I'm like, but it made me feel bad that he thought I broke in line with him, but I didn't. So anywho, uh, I hate people who break in line. And today we're going to look at the story of someone who cut in line to get to Jesus. And she doesn't do it because she's rude. She does it because she's desperate. And desperate people do desperate things. Now, it shows us the kind of faith that Jesus responds to when we act in faith with him. But it also shows us what Jesus wants from us when he doesn't seem to be responding. So get in your Bibles in Mark chapter number 5. Look at verse number 20. We're going to start in verse number 22. Mark 5 Verse 22, the Bible says, And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue. And I lost my space. Okay. There, became, there came, cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet. 
And he besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. Now, right off the bat, we, we meet a very important person, Jarius. Jarius was a leader in the synagogue, which means he was a wealthy individual. He was a powerful individual, and he was very well known. Everyone in the city would have known who Jarius is. He is one of the top-ranking officials in the city. And the way he approaches Jesus is very unique. You have this top-ranking, powerful, well-known man coming to Jesus, and what does he do? He bows at his feet. He humbles himself to Jesus. And as a leader of the synagogue, he wouldn't bow to anyone, especially Jesus. Jesus is considered a, a heretic. He's considered a troublemaker. And here is Jarius, a leader of the synagogue who is friends and, you know, he's close to the Pharisees, bowing down to the man that the Pharisees hate and think are causing so much trouble. But not only that, he says, the Bible says he besought him. The word besought in the Greek literally means to plead or to beg. A man in Jarius' position wouldn't beg anybody for anything. But he's, he's coming to Jesus. He's bowing to him, a shameful act of a man of his stature, and is begging Jesus to help him. Why would a man of his authority and his power do that? Because his daughter is dying. And when your daughter is dying, you do anything for her. He'll do whatever is necessary to help her. Luke tells us that this is his only daughter. This little girl meant the world to him. And so he was willing to humble himself or humiliate himself or do whatever he had to do to make sure his daughter got what she needed. Let's keep reading. Look at verse number 24. And Jesus went with him, and much people followed him and thronged him. Now, that word's important there, that word thronged. It literally means to, to kind of crowd together and bump into. So Jesus right now is in my worst nightmare. He's in the middle of a crowd, and people are shoving and pushing and trying to get to him and say, Oh, Jesus. Now, no one's ever going to you know, try to get to me because I'm so popular or so, you know, so fancy. But I do hate being in crowds. And so Jesus is in a crowd. People are bumping around, hitting him, you know, all kinds of stuff. And, you know, so he's, he's in this crowd. Everyone's touching him. Everyone's bumping into him. He's trying to get to Jerry's house. Look at verse number 35. And a certain woman, which had an issue of blood 12 years. So now we've met a second person. We've met Jarius, powerful leader, well-known person, well-respected man, and this nameless woman. We never learn her name. We don't know who she is. We don't know what her story is. All we know is she has an issue of blood that has lasted 12 years. Many theologians believe that this is called menorrhagia. It's an uncontrolled menstrual bleeding. This issue, this problem that she is having, she's had it for 12 years. And because of her issue, because of her illness, she is considered unclean until the issue is resolved. 
That's how it worked in, in those times when women would have their cycle. They would be unclean during that time. They weren't allowed to be touched. They, weren't nothing, they, couldn't, go to the, they couldn't go to the synagogue to worship. They couldn't go out in crowds because if they were in their time and they were unclean and they touched someone, that person became unclean. So for 12 years, this woman could not go to the synagogue to worship. She could not go in public and be in crowds. During this unclean time in a woman's life, her husband wasn't allowed to touch her. So for 12 years, her husband hasn't touched her, hasn't hugged her, hasn't patted her on the leg, hasn't had no one has done anything for her for 12 years. She, she has had no physical touch for 12 years. No one's hugged her. No one's touched her. No one has laid hands on her to pray over her. Nothing. For 12 years. And we don't even know her name. She is lonely. She is an outcast. Look at verse number 26. And had suffered many things of many physicians and had spent all she had and was nothing bettered, but rather grew worse. She spent all of her money, all of her effort trying various doctors and various remedies. And not only did she not get any better, she got worse. She's sicker. She's weaker. She's in more pain. She has lost all hope. Now, this, this story here is a story of contrasts. You have Jairus, who everybody knows, who's powerful, who's known, who's respected. You have this nameless woman that no one cares about. She's rejected. She's an outcast. She is someone that, no, she is a nobody. She, Jairus, has a 12-year-old daughter who is dying. This woman's been sick for 12 years. He's the ruler of the synagogue, and she's not even allowed in the synagogue. She is respected. She is rejected. He is a household name. She has no name. Look at verse 27. When she had heard of Jesus, when she had heard of Jesus, came in the press, behold... And touched his garment, for she said, If I may touch but touch his clothes, I shall be whole. Now, by this time in, in Jesus' life, word of his of his his miracles and word of who he was began to spread. And there was a lot of people who were teaching and believing that he was the Messiah. And the book of Malachi says that the, when the Messiah comes, he would come with healing in his wings. A lot of theologians believe that this woman thought, because a lot of people thought that Jesus had healing power in the, the, his garments and in, in his, the hems of his garments. So she thought that he was her only chance, that the, if she would just get to him and touch his garment, she would be healed. But the problem is, she isn't supposed to be in public. She isn't supposed to touch anyone. According to the law, if she were to touch someone in her unclean state, that person 
or that thing would become unclean. And according to Jewish law, if an unclean person touched a holy object or a holy man like Jesus, they would be stoned to death. She is risking everything to get to Jesus. She risks public scorn. She fights her way through the crowd. She, she probably kept her face covered so no one would see her and recognize her and, and call her out for what she was doing. But she didn't care about the crowds. She had to know the truth. She had to know if Jesus was who he said he was. So she fights her way to him. And as he walks past, she reaches out and grabs his garment. Now, the word touched in the, in the Bible here literally means to clutch. She didn't just, oh, let me touch it. She grabbed it. She yanked. Now, a lot of people were grabbing Jesus at this time. A lot of people were, were touching him and pulling on him. But she grabs it and she yanks and something incredible happens. Look at verse number 29. And straightway, the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. Now, Again, a lot of people were touching Jesus. I'm sure people who were touching Jesus or bumping into Jesus, I'm sure they had some ailments, they had some problems, but they didn't get healed. But this woman, as soon as she grabs hold of his garment, she is immediately healed. Imagine her joy as she reaches out and grabs his garment and immediately knows she's been healed in an incredible way. How ecstatic she must have been. How happy she must have been. Look what happens in verse 30. And Jesus immediately, knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned him in the press and said, who touched my clothes? Now, first of all, I want you to notice the passive nature of this verse. It says, Jesus knew that virtue had gone out of him. He didn't send it out of him. It left him without him doing anything. Now, this doesn't mean Jesus doesn't control his power. It doesn't mean that Jesus has no control over what he does. It's not presented that way. It mean, it's meant to show us something about the faithfulness of Jesus. That Jesus is so faithful to act out on our faith that he does it like a reflex. That when someone reaches out in faith to Jesus, immediately he works in their life. No matter who they are, no matter where they come from, if they act out in faith, Jesus responds immediately. And so notice the question. He says, who touched me? Now, do any of us really believe he didn't know who touched him? Anyone here think Jesus did not know who touched him? Of course he knew who touched him. He's, he's God. He knows everything. So who touched me is not really a question that he's trying to get. He is inviting this woman to come forward and confess what she did. Not because what she did was sin, but because there is a public dimension to faith. God wants us to proclaim what he's done in our life, how he's moved in our life, and that we believe and profess in him. That's why baptism is so important. Look, there's nothing special about baptism spiritually. You don't get to heaven faster because you get baptized. You don't keep out of heaven if you don't get baptized. You don't get a bigger house in heaven if you get baptized. Because again, as I've said numerous times, I don't think we have mansions in heaven. But the Bible says, no, the Bible says in my house, Father's house are many mansions. He doesn't say we get one. He says, hey, they're there. 
well, if there is one there, why are you in it? Jesus is there. Just hang out with him, all right? That's all we got to do. But anyway, so there's no special privilege, spiritually speaking, to baptism. Baptism is a public profession of your faith. It is you standing up and declaring to the world, I put my faith in Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection for payment of my sins. He is my father. I am saved and on my way to heaven when I die. And it's just proclaiming it to the world. God doesn't want us to keep our faith hidden. He wants us to declare our faith, to proclaim our faith to people who have no faith or who are struggling their faith to encourage them. Because look, even if it's not, not just for salvation, but your faith in God for doing anything in your life. You put your faith in God and God works. Don't keep it a secret because you could help someone else. You could encourage Someone else. You could bless someone else. But even if, despite all that, when you proclaim what God has done in your life, you are glorifying God. That's the greatest thing we can do. So Jesus isn't, accused, isn't having this woman come forward to confess and be stoned. He wants her to boldly proclaim what he has done in her life so others can believe in him as well. The disciples who, let's be honest, they're, they're never really the sharpest knives in the drawer. They think Jesus is actually asking this question. So look, look what happens in verse 31. <clears throat> and the disciples said unto him, Now seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? So Jesus, he's walking down. This woman grabs his garment. She gets healed. He stops, says, Who touched me? Knowing full well who did it, knowing why he's asking. And the disciples are like, Really? Everyone's touching. Are you really asking us who touched you? I can imagine Jesus just giving them the, the look of like, you guys are so stupid. I teach y'all stuff all the time and y'all just never get it. Y'all are idiots. Because let's face it, they, they pretty much were. But these are the guys who God's going to use to build the church in a few years. These are the guys who are going to turn the world upside down for God in a few years. So this tells us God doesn't build his kingdom on the awesomeness of men. He builds it on his power and his power alone. So if you're dumb like the disciples, guess what? You're in good company with me too. They just, they didn't believe him. They didn't understand what's going on, but God is trying to show how he works through his power. Look at verse 32. And he looked around to see her that had done this thing, but the woman fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. Now, there's a reason she is so scared. This scorned, alienated woman and comes forward and confesses what had happened, scared of what's going to happen next, because in this time, again, if an unclean person touched a clean person, they made that person unclean and they were stoned for it. So she has no idea what's going to happen. She thinks that she is going to die or be punished for what she did. But what happens next is the most important teaching lesson in the life of Jesus. It may be the most important lesson in all of Scripture. It's the central question to every religion. What happens when you're exposed before a holy God and all your shame and sinfulness. Look what happens in verse 34. And he said unto her, 
daughter, thy faith had made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. Now this word daughter here in the Greek, it is the most intimate term that a father would use for his daughter. It means precious child, precious daughter. You wouldn't use this for someone you just met. You know, I know here in the South, we call everyone sweetheart. You know, everybody's a sweetheart or a honey or a darling. That's not the case here. You didn't use these intimate, personal terms for someone you had just met. And she is the only person Jesus ever calls precious daughter. The girl that everyone had rejected. The girl that no one wanted is just called precious daughter by the ultimate father. The girl that no one wanted to touch is embraced by the strongest and most tender arms in the universe. The girl that was so unseen, no one even knew her name, is precious to God. See the contrast? Jarius is pleading for his daughter's life before Jesus. This woman, she had no father fighting for her. She had no one coming to Jesus saying, hey, my wife or my daughter, she's been sick for 12 years, and if you'll just touch her, she'll be healed. She had no one fighting for her, and Jairus, who has everything, who is known by everybody, is fighting for his daughter. To Jairus, Jesus is going to be a healer. But to this woman, not only is he her healer, he becomes her father. He becomes to us what we lack. To the lonely, he's a friend. To the fatherless, he's a father. To the poor, he is the riches that they need. He's not going to give you riches. He is the riches. We don't see, you know, he calls her precious daughter. Then he tells her to go in peace and be healed from her disease. And again, sometimes we don't, in, in modern day American Christianity, we don't really understand what's happening here. But we, we, you know, to understand it more, we saw in Ezra last, last a couple weeks ago that when an unclean thing touches a clean thing, the, un, the clean thing's made unclean, and they're both still unclean. But this woman, the clean thing, Jesus, made the unclean thing clean. Now, we should really understand a little bit better this after this past year and a half. If a sick person comes in contact with a healthy person, the healthy person gets sick, right? No healthy person ever makes a sick person healthy. That's not how it works. I'm like, well, my immune system is really strong, and so since I'm healthy, uh, no. And when the sick person makes the healthy person sick, they're both sick. Their sickness doesn't transfer one to another. It doesn't vanish. They are both sick. But in this case, the clean person makes the unclean person clean, and the uncleanness is gone. But where did it go? Jesus took it into himself. He didn't become unclean, but remember, Jesus is headed to the cross. He is beginning his work of substitution. 
He is going to end his life on the cross where he will become sin for all of us and he will bear the shame of our sin and our uncleanness. You know, Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. He would be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. The core truth of the gospel is the substitutionary death of Jesus for us. On the cross, he took the defilement. He took the condemnation so that we could receive his healing and we could receive fellowship with God the Father. He, he, and that didn't just happen, didn't begin on the cross. It happened all throughout the life of Jesus. See, our moment of salvation is being illustrated here. We reach out and touch Jesus in faith in our guilt and the penalty for our sin passes to him and we receive his righteousness. His wholeness, his purity passes to us. He takes our sin and shame and gives us his righteousness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, says, For he hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That is the greatest transaction in the history of the world. Jesus took your sin and shame and guilt and everything you've done wrong, and he gives you his righteousness. And what do you got to do for it? Just reach out and touch him. Just by faith, believe that he lived a perfect life, died on the cross in your place, was buried and rose again three days later to redeem you to God the Father. That's all you got to do. And he gives you his righteousness. This woman, she goes home to her family, clean, restored, accepted again, and Jesus goes to the cross. But look at verse number 35. While he yet spake, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? Now, at this point, we've probably forgotten about Jairus, but he's still here. He's still in need. And Mark reminds us not only of his problem, but who he is. From the leader's house, Jairus is a leader. He's important. He's vital. He has a need. His daughter is sick. She is dying. And he comes to him and says, your daughter's already dead. Now, everything worked out great for this nameless woman. She's, she's healed. She's restored. But Jarius has just received the worst news a parent can get. His world is collapsing around him. The start, story starts with him pleading with Jesus to rush to his house because he says, my daughter is at death's door. And on the way to deal with his immediately dying daughter, Jesus takes time to deal with not a dying woman, a sick woman. Is her issue important? Yeah, it's important. But she's had it for 12 years. She could wait a few more minutes. She could have waited a little bit longer for Jesus to deal with her instead of Jesus taking time to deal with her and talk with her, converse with her, and beautiful story. But while this beautiful story is taking place, Jairus' daughter dies. 
If Jesus were a doctor, this just wouldn't be incompetent. It'd be malpractice. He could be sued for what he's just done. Jairus' faith is being put to the test. Is he going to trust Jesus to do the impossible, or will he see his situation as hopeless? Look at verse number 36. Now remember, Jairus just got word, your daughter's dead. Don't bother him anymore. Verse 36. And as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he saith unto the rule of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. And he suffered no man to follow, save Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And he cometh to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and seeth the torment, and them that wept and wailed greatly. And when he was come in, he saith unto them that weep, Why make you this ado and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. Seems like an insensitive question. He comes in, and what I notice here about, about Jarius is Jarius just got word, your daughter's dead. He doesn't look to Jesus and start accusing him. He doesn't start blaming him or, or yelling at him. He doesn't even tell him, don't bother anymore. Jesus just says, hey, don't believe them. That she's, she's not dead, just believe in me. And Jarius never questions it. He immediately just takes Jesus home. But when he gets home, Jarius knows what's going on. Jarius has faith to believe. But these people in the house, they just, their, their daughter, their granddaughter, their friend is dead. And so they're, they're crying, they're weeping. And Jesus comes in and goes, why y'all, why y'all upset? She ain't asleep. She's, she's not a dead. She's just asleep. Look at verse 40. And they laughed him to scorn. Now, it doesn't mean that they're like laughing, like, oh, <laughs> that's so funny. They are mocking him, and really they're angry at him and yelling, how dare you say something like that? So they, they mock him to scorn, and, and look at it, continue on. It says, and they mocked him to scorn, uh, left him to scorn, and when he had put them out, he talketh to the, taketh the father and the mother of the damsel, and then they were with him, and entereth in where the damsel was lying. Verse 41, and he took the damsel by the hand and said unto her, Talithia kumai, which is being interpreted damsel, I say unto thee, arise. Now, it says there, you know, it's interpreted damsel, rise, but the word damsel there doesn't just mean little girl. This means sweetheart. It's not as, not as tender or as intimate as precious child, but it's still a, a precious and intimate, you know, asking. And then he says, Arise. Now, he doesn't say, you know, resurrect, be thou alive. He literally just says, get up. It's like he's talking to a teenager who won't, won't get out of bed. Y'all ever deal with that? Yeah, we got that. We got to constantly go, get up, get up, get up, get up. That's, that's what he goes, hey, sweetheart, get up. And immediately she arises. So Jesus is facing the most feared devastating enemy that the human race has ever faced and he treats it like he's waking up a stubborn teenager. Look at verse number 42. And straightway the damsel arose and walked for she was of the age of 12 years and they were astonished with a great astonishment. Now these two stories, we're almost done here. I know we spent a lot of time going through the story but I wanted to get through the story, get to the foundation. These two stories show us two incredible, have two incredible meanings for us. Here's the first one. Number one, the first meaning it has for us is Jesus delivers us from death. Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. These stories 
do not show us primarily how to get miracles from Jesus. Jesus is not our genie that if we follow steps one, two, and three, he's going to give us whatever we want or whatever we need. They are pictures of how we become children of God. They are reenactments of what salvation looks like. We are like this woman. We are unclean. Our sin has left us diseased and and unrighteous before God. Our sin has caused us to be guilty and cast out. But this woman, she's not suffering because of something she's done. She's just sick. It's just a disease she has. She didn't do anything to get it. It just happened to her. But we are suffering because of our sin. See, we're hopeless. And there's no cure for us. Education can't help you. Science can't help. Religion and good works can't help. Nothing can help. But not only do they not fix the problem, like this woman going to the doctor, as they make things worse. Like this woman... We have to reach out to Jesus intentionally. Jesus wasn't just passing by and brushed across her and she was healed. She intentionally sought out Jesus. You don't get the power of Jesus just by being around him. There were other people around Jesus who had needs who didn't get a miracle because they were just around him. She said, I am going to do whatever I have to do to get to Jesus. Only the woman who sought a miracle got one. There are a lot of people in churches today who are just casually touching Jesus. They are just being around the things of Jesus, expecting something great. They're, they're singing the songs, they're listening to the sermon, but they're not seeking Jesus intentionally. We hear from him when we seek him. You know, the Bible says in Jeremiah 29, it says, And you shall seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Too often I've, I've talked to many people and counseled them and who are struggling their walk with God. And it's like, you know, I just, I don't, I don't hear from God. During, you know, the sermons don't mean anything to me. They're, I just don't, it's not reaching, you know, nothing's going through. And I just don't know what's going on. Are we intentionally seeking God? If you're not looking, if you're just expecting God to show up because you're here and you're not seeking him, you're not going to get anything. You know, it's like Thanksgiving. You know, I love Thanksgiving because I can eat enough, that, enough food to feed a small village for a year. I'll eat it in one day, especially banana pudding and pecan pie. It's pecan. It's not pecan. It's pecan pie and oh, ham and turkey. And man, I'm getting hungry all of a sudden. But I love Thanksgiving. You know what I do to prepare for Thanksgiving? Yeah, I brine the turkey. You know, I, I do all that stuff. But Thanksgiving Day, we eat, you know, usually about five or six. I don't eat all day long. I want my stomach as empty as possible to fill it up. I come to the table hungry, looking to eat. Do you come to church hungry for God, looking for him to move? Do you open your Bible Monday through Saturday? Because look, if you're only coming to eat on Sunday, you're going to starve to death. you got to see God every day. Do you come to your Bible every day and say, God, I, I want to get something from you? 
You know why most people don't get anything from the Bible? Because they don't ask God to show them anything. The Bible says the Holy Spirit's job is to show you truth in the Word of God. So before you open your Bible, well, I just don't understand it. You don't got to have a degree. You just got to have the Holy Spirit. And say, God, show me what I need today. And you could get something from the, the, the begattings and chronicles. Say, what can you get? I don't know. I've never gotten anything from that. Uh, but I've, honestly, I've never, when I'm reading the begattings, never said, God, show me something from all this begotten. You begot it for something. Show me what I, I've never done that, so I don't get anything from it. But if you are, go to God and say, God, show me something from your word today. God's going to show you something. God says, if you seek me, you'll find me. Why don't I see God? You're not looking for him. You're not intentionally looking for a miracle. When we step out in faith, like this woman, seeking Jesus to heal us from our sin, we receive the grace that saves us. But we also are like this little girl. We need someone to save us from death. Death is our ultimate enemy. Death brings an abrupt relationship to everything in your life. Every relationship, death ends it. Every business venture, your work, oh, I got something great in the works, death stops that right away. Every goal, every hope, every dream, death ends all of it. Jesus faced our ultimate enemy on the cross and he defeated him when he rose from the grave. Paul says he took the sting out of death. Meaning, our bodies are still going to die. But it doesn't end everything. It begins eternity. As a believer, when we die, it's not the end. It's the beginning. Even when a loved one who is saved goes to heaven before us, it doesn't end our relationship. It's just, I'll see you when I get there. I'll see you later. I'll see you when I get to heaven. It doesn't end anything. It's the beginning of everything. He's the only way because he is the only person, only man, only entity to ever conquer death. Look, Muhammad died. Guess where Muhammad is? He's still in the grave. Buddha died. Guess where Buddha is? He's still in the grave. Jesus died. Guess where Jesus is? He's alive and in heaven right now. He's the only one to ever conquer death. So he delivers us from death. And number two, Jesus works in our daily lives. See, these stories, they show us how to approach God with our problems. Faith gets us the power of God. See, this woman risked everything on the belief that Jesus would help her and he did. Jesus never turned anyone away who had faith in him. He always healed according to their faith. He may not work in the way that you expect him to, but he always works for your good and for his glory. But maybe you're like Jarius. You're hopeless about your situation. Hopeless about your family, about the future, about what's happening in your life. When it's hopeless, we have a Savior that makes a way for us when there seems to be no way for us to get help. You know, it may seem like Jarius has no faith, but he, he never 
told Jesus it was too late. He never told Jesus, why bother? She's already dead. He trusts that Jesus is going to work. He doesn't know how he's going to work or when he will work, but he trusts that he will. That's how faith works. We trust God to work, even though we don't know how he's going to do it or when he's going to do it, but we trust that his plans are better than ours. His plans are better for us. His time can frustrate us sometimes. I'm sure Jarius would have rather his daughter not died in the first place, not have to receive that news. Yes, was she healed? Was she resurrected? Yes, it's a great miracle. But put yourself in Jarius' shoes when he first gets that news. Your daughter's dead. The heart-crushing pain he had to have felt. Even trusting Jesus and walking, still the, the pain and the agony and the uncertainty. But yeah, great miracle after, but I'm sure he said, you know, Jesus, you could have done this and just, you know, not let her die. That would have been incredible too. She's about to die. You save her. Woohoo. But he, he trusted him and Jesus worked in a way. That's how faith works. This time can frustrate us, but we have to trust his timing. Why did Jesus take time to deal with this woman who could have waited and ignored his need? Why did he just let his daughter die? But he never questioned it. His grief was turned into joy as his daughter got up and started walking around. He stopped questioning his plan and he rejoiced. You know, we may not, may not understand what God is doing in our problems, but we can trust that he's working in our daily lives. He loves us and he wants to help us. We just have to trust him that he's going to work in his way for, his, for our good and for his glory. You know, the same Jesus that healed this woman and raised this girl from the dead is the same Jesus we serve today. The same power that they experienced is the same power that we have available to us today. He has the power to deliver us from death and hell. He has the power to work in our daily lives to solve our problems for his glory. We just have to have faith that he can and will work if we seek him intentionally. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.